It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 161, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Elizabeth and Paul Kaiser raise a little under three acres of vegetables at Singing Frogs Farm in Sebastopol, California, where they've been farming since 2007. Their ecological farming model rests on a foundation of no-till production, but incorporates many more elements to build soil organic matter and soil biology to support an economically viable operation. Elizabeth and Paul dig deep into the ecological and production principles that undergird their success from soil management to transplant production and crop planting strategies. We take a look at their use of hedgerows for soil building, climate management, and insect management, including their tips for installing and maintaining these important ecological tools. And we discuss employee management within their complex nonlinear production system, as well as the economics of their production system. And perhaps most importantly, Paul and Elizabeth emphasized the ways that observation and their responses to their observations provided the foundation for building what they consider to be an example and not a model of their ecological production system. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by Farmer's Web, software for your farm. Farmer's Web makes it easier to work with your buyers, saving time, reducing errors, and increasing your capacity to work with more buyers overall. Farmersweb.com and by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop-growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high-quality compost and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com And by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSAmerica.com Paul and Elizabeth Kaiser, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thank you very much. Fantastic. Glad to be here. Really glad that we could finally connect. I think I've been after you guys for, for well over a year to get you on the show. Um, I'd <laughs> <Yes. like> <laughs> yeah, I, I know farmers are busy people and, and sometimes you just have to be yeah. persistent. So I'd like to start off by having you tell us about Singing Frogs Farm. Where are you guys located? How many acres of vegetables you're growing? How are you guys selling it? And what are you guys doing that makes the farm special? Fantastic. Well, I'll just uh, dive in and give you some of the basics. So we are in Sebastopol, California, which is in Sonoma County, which is wine country. We're about an hour and a half north of the Golden Gate Bridge of San Francisco. Our property is eight acres, um, but it's got a lot of little nooks and crannies, plus we live here. So our actual production is under three acres. Uh, we've been here for almost 12 years. Uh, two weeks from now will be our anniversary of moving onto the property. So that's really exciting. Uh, and oh, we've been farming bit by bit that whole time. Uh, our food, we're, uh, we're a small farm, but we're very productive and we're year round. About 35% of our food goes out to our CSA. We do a year round CSA that's got 40 uh, harvest a year. We do weekly harvests from May through Thanksgiving and then every other week from Thanksgiving through the end of April. Uh, and then we also do farmers markets. That's about 50% of our income. Uh, and we have two year round farmers markets. And then we have one or two others that we will add in the high season. And uh, we just love that community. And then the last little bit of our produce does go out to some restaurants that we have a good relationship with, as well as we have a really fantastic food hub in our community called Feed Sonoma. Uh, so about 
five to 99% of our produce stays within 15 miles of our farm, which is really uh, important to us. Now, there's a reason that, I, that I've been trying to get after you for a whole year. And there's a reason that you guys are really busy. And that's because you're not just doing the farm thing. You're doing a lot of teaching and education work. And I'd like you to, to tell us about the production systems there at Singing Frogs Farm that has so many people. I've had more requests to have you on the show than I've had for anybody else. And, and so I'd like you to tell us about what it is that makes Singing Frogs Farm different. Well, thank you for that. Um, I think what often catches people's attention is the, um, the sales figures, but there are many farms out there that we've met who are doing better than us or the same as us for sale per acre. But the reason the sales per acre figures are important for Singing Frogs Farm is because we are also focusing heavily and exclusively on doing a really ecological farming model with no tillage of any kind. An entirely hand labor, ecologically based farming model that happens to also produce revenue for us to live on and our crew. And I think there's a lot of information out there, especially right now, about tillage and carbon. And it is really rocking the, the box that farming has been in. I mean, you think of farming and what do most people think of? They think of a tractor and a plow. Um, and here we are, these you know little Northern California farmers on less than three acres saying, well, we're doing it. We're not doing tillage. And I think that rocks a lot of boats. And what we're doing is very specific. There's a lot of ways to do it. Um, we have gotten into sharing it because... Um, oh gosh, I don't even know why, but we got into talking about ecology. Our, our background is really in ecology and we love that. And, uh, and people kept asking. And so we kept telling about it. That's how we got into telling about it. I think it's really critical for farmers to remember our job, our role in this world. And it isn't just producing food and making ends meet, which is critical because you can't be a farmer the next year if you didn't make your ends meet the prior year. But Part of that growing food process obviously involves soil. And we can get into a whole debate on hydroponics and organics and all that, but soil is foundation for a farmer. And we have to remember that what makes planet Earth distinct is not the chemistry, it's the biology. Biology is what makes us distinct here. And soil biology is critical to all life on planet Earth. And all things that die get transformed through soil biology back into nutrients for the next round of life. And in addition to that decomposition, more importantly, is photosynthesis. And photosynthesis, taking all the atmospheric carbon that we have too much of and free and abundant sunlight, is drawn in by the plants and made into all kinds of nutrient and energy packets, of which, yes, the plant grows using that, those nutrients, but at least a third and up to two-thirds or three-quarters of the nutrients a plant makes through photosynthesis is exuded through the roots to feed soil biology. And it's critical as farmers and land managers to remember that photosynthesis is what makes planet Earth unique and special. And we need to constantly be feeding soil biology through the act of photosynthesis, therefore maintaining a full and complete cover of green living plants on the soil at all times of the year, as best we can, is critical. A diversity of plants, so you have a diversity of root exudates, is critical. And you, of course, you never want to disturb that soil with any means of mechanization or metal tools going to the soil because all that disturbance is going to wipe out the biology that's there and destroy the habitat, destroy the interrelationships, destroy the fungal colonies and networks, destroy the root exudate um, pathways. 
it's going to wipe out that which, as farmers, we need to care about most. And I think he said that very much from the ecologist side. But what you're also doing is you're also growing food that you are feeding to your community, that you are making a livelihood off of and so forth. And so we can do these two things together. And we want people to understand that, you know, the way that we've gotten it to work on our under three acres here in Sebastopol, California, is not the way it needs to be done. There's all sorts of really innovative things that are happening. Um, it's just that our the, the, the box of tillage that a lot of people are in, we want to have people think about how might there be other ways to do that. So when you say no tillage on your farm, and I've talked to a lot of people who who say, you know, we, we don't do tillage or I've got a no-till farming operation, but it seems to mean something different to everybody. When you say no-till, does that mean that you guys aren't stirring the soil at all, aren't going in there with a broad fork, or are there some, are there some intermediate technologies that you're applying that aren't going in there with a BCS or a rototiller or a plow? Sure. Great question. And there are many versions of no-till. In fact, the common mechanized no-till on soy and corn farms across the Midwest, that is actually only no-till for two or three years, and then they do a full round of tillage to wipe the slate clean and start over. And that's still called no-till. For us, we have beds that we have not disturbed the soil in for seven straight years. And those beds have had probably on the order of about 30 or 35 crops, maybe even 45 crops over those seven years without any broad fork, without any key line plow or hoe or rototiller or anything else, but simply managing the soil through its, through keeping it covered all times with green living plants that are maximizing photosynthesis and having zero disturbance. Now, where might some you be able to say, oh, there's something that might be tillage? Let me answer your question on that. On the initial field creation, we did do tillage, but it was actually because we were doing tillage initially. And a lot of people who are transitioning their farms over, yeah, you're already doing tillage, do one more passive tillage. Or do an initial passive tillage, put it in no-till beds, and then never do it again and, as a way of getting started up. But there are no completely no-till ways to get started as well. So there, that, that's one, there was tillage at that point. Another one is the broad fork that you brought up. We are on primarily a sandy loam. About two-thirds of our fields are a sandy loam. About one-third is a clay loam. And our sandy loam fields, we did use a broad fork at first. We do see a broad fork as a really good transition or initiation tool. Um, and we don't see it fully as tillage because you're not inverting the soil. You're not really breaking up aggregates. Yes, you are bringing in some aeration. Um, in fact, with a broad fork, you could even use a broad fork during a cropping um, cycle so that you can do it while you have full green cover and photosynthesis on the soil. There's no reason a broad fork has to be done in a bare and empty bed. And it's really just to lift the soil and decompact it. And as she said, it's a transition tool because the active tillage, when we began our farm, we were tilling for one or two years in the beginning. And that turned a lot of that sandy loam into concrete. And then we had to work with the broad fork for the next year or two to help break up that concrete and turn it back into even healthier soil than it was before we began tilling. And then the lower fields, 
The lower fields that are a clay loam, as I just mentioned, we actually get flooded almost every winter. We didn't this winter. Last winter, we had seven floods. And so with that clay, we get quite a bit of um, compaction. It was far, far worse when we were doing tillage. So last year, we did broad fork in all of those lower beds that were a clay loam that were compacted with seven floods. Um, but we aren't at all this year because we haven't had any floods. So it's really it depends on the situation. And I don't know that I even consider it tillage. And so what else are you? What else are you doing then? I mean, if you know, in the absence of tillage, there must be some sort of action that you're taking to favor the growth of the annual plants that you want to have growing in those growing beds over everything else that might be trying to grow in those growing beds. Well said. We're both laughing. Um, yes, of course, because that's what the farmer's job is. So when the in order to describe what we do, it is incredibly easy. Um, in the morning, we harvest cauliflower. We come back through and we cut the plant out at or below ground level, leaving the root structure intact in the soil and all the top growth, above ground growth, goes to the compost pile. Then we come back in and we prepare the bed, which we can talk about briefly soon, um, either with compost or with organic fertilizer or neither or both. And then we transplant the next round of crops in that bed so that the time from one standing crop that was just harvested to the next crop that is now transplanted in, hopefully is on the order of a few hours. And that way we have maximum consistent photosynthesis. And that act of clearing the bed allows us to also clear out weeds in addition to clearing out all the leftover detritus from the crops. And then because you left that cauliflower root intact, let's say, the, all, those, all the rhizosphere, all the biology associated with and surrounding that rhizosphere of roots of cauliflower, they're never harmed. And in fact, the roots won't even begin to die for a couple of days. They're still being fed exudates. They're still having that relationship. Meanwhile, you've already put a brand new root structure of the next crop in the ground right next door to that cauliflower in the bed. So you have this rhizosphere that is never deprived of nutrients and immediately is offered a whole new source of nutrients coming in right next door. So you're maximizing health the whole way through. And when you're talking about the rhizosphere, what you're talking about is this, this web of mycelium that is down there in the soil that's inhabiting the roots of the plant that you've just cut the top of, of that cauliflower plant that's now no longer in your field. But the, the mycelium are still there and in those roots and spreading out into the soil. And what you're saying is now you can go from that into the next crop. Correct. And it's not just the mycelium, it's also the nematodes and the bacteria and all the other beneficials. There are just billions and billions and billions and billions of species of beneficial soil microbes that mostly we know very little about, except that the more of them we have, the healthier our plants are, the healthier the soil is, and the higher the nutrient density of the crops coming out of the soil is as well. And also I'd like to add in there, we are not mechanically moving the soil around, but everybody else is. The plants are, the earthworms are, all of the other little organisms, they're moving the soil around quite a lot. Um, and, and that's how it should be. We don't want to disturb that ecosystem and that process that they have going on. We want to work along with it rather than against it. So as a result of our managing our soil in a no-till system over the years, certainly we apply compost between most crops, especially if you go from a heavy feeder to a heavy feeder, um, but not always. 
And we've actually done soil tests going down three feet in our fields, in our beds. And we found that the organic matter levels down at two and a half to three feet of depth are the same as what our organic matter levels used to be in the top six inches before we began tilling the property. Which just which was about two and a half percent organic matter. Wow. Since then, we've now increased our soil organic matter in the top three foot horizons so that the bottom of those three feet is two and a half percent and the top of the three feet is anywhere between eight and eleven percent, depending on what we feel is appropriate for that field in terms of its exposure to sun and wind and its um, soil type, clay or silt or sand, et cetera. And so we can actually modify the organic matters to go higher or lower according to what kind of benefit or detriment we see for that field and what it needs. And one of the things that we found is, I mean, they say that our fertile land used to be between 6 and 10% soil organic matter. Not ours, but the USDA says that nationally speaking, much of the good ag land in the U.S. was between 6 and 10% organic matter yes. before humans intervened. Thank you for the clarification. Ours <laughs> in the greater sense <laughs> was between 6 and 10%. And through our um, recent soil management practices, that's come down to 1% to 2%. Well, in California, even further, the CDFA, the California Department of Food and Ag, uh, 18 months ago said that California has a 1% soil organic matter. And what average. we average now, we didn't used to. Right. We've depleted it, destroyed it. Exactly. And we've found that sort of eight to 11, 12 percent soil organic matter is where really where our plants are doing well. Um, I don't think it's it's a surprise um, that where it used to be, where the mother nature had it is a really good place to be. Right. Now, we do hear of some farms that have gotten their soil organic matter much, much higher. Um, we just didn't find much benefit to that and don't know anything about it. Maybe they've got some amazing thing going on there. Now, for building soil organic matter, what have you been doing to make that happen? And you mentioned the compost. Is that your primary source of soil organic matter? Great. I'm glad you asked. And that's often what's promoted in literature written about us, but it's not at all necessarily the truth of what is happening here. As I mentioned, we've had this amazing increase in organic matter in the top three feet of our soil. And some back of the napkin calculations with a few other soil scientists, friends of ours, and we all sort of agreed that, honestly, if you calculate how much compost has been put down over the years in the fields, that the organic matter level increase we've had can only be, um, can only be accounted for, only about a third or a quarter of the organic matter levels increase can be accounted for by the compost additions, which means more than half of the organic matter increase we've had on the farm has nothing to do with the compost and everything to do with the other hundred tools in our toolbox for better soil management. And compost is simply one tool in our toolbox and there are many, many hundreds of others. So I started a few minutes ago by mentioning that it's so simple. We cut out the plant, prep the bed and transplant the next one. But uh, like anything that's successful and healthy and really deeply comprehensive like this, it is never that simple as three little things, right? There are actually a thousand little nuanced techniques to make it function really well. And that's where all those gains come in, not just in the organic matter level gains and the soil biology gains, but also the crop harvesting gains and the amount of um, revenue that we're generating from our fields. Okay, so, so let's just start a list. What are all of those thousand little things that you're doing? <laughs> How much time do you have, Chris? <laughs> it's... This is one of those things where we have workshops for a reason. We got to get out there and get your hands dirty. It's all the little man of techniques that 
all work together in a system. And I guess one easy one to start with would be having large transplants. Because if you do direct seeded crops out in the fields, well, that direct seed goes in the soil. It takes a week of staying constantly moist and wet as you water it. But while you're watering the, weed, the seed, you're also watering weed seeds. And then they germinate. And then you still have another three or four weeks until they really grow and begin to cover and shade the soil. That means you have at least a four-week time in which you had nothing covering the soil, nothing feeding the soil, and yet you were watering it. Well, if your organic matter is low to begin with and you're just watering it for four weeks with no roots, then you're mostly leaching out the nutrients that you'd put in ahead of time. <clears throat> Hence, you need to top dress or side dress a, a month or two after germination. And we prefer to do transplants. And we also use very large, healthy transplants. They tend to be five or six inches tall. They've been in the nursery for four weeks. And we use the larger six packs um, that you'd find at any standard nursery. Not the jumbo six packs that are deep, but just the standard six packs. We do one seed per cell, no thinning, because thinning is just maintenance management, it's not production. And we put transplants out so that we can have large, healthy plants going into the fields the same day that we just had a standing crop that we harvested out. Now, some of the benefits of a large, healthy transplant going in the field um, at four weeks of age mean is if it spent the first four weeks of its life in the nursery, then it has less time in the field. Well, less time in the field translates to more crops per year and also translates to less availability for pests. And so if we do have pests that show up, if it tends to be maybe aphids and the aphids might just finally discover that tatsoy or that broccoli at the very, very end of its harvest cycle, because it had less time in the field and more of its life was in the nursery. Well, if you're just having aphids arrive on the last 5% of the broccoli harvest, guess what? You harvest that last 5%, you wash off the aphids, then you cut and clear the plants, put them in the compost pile, cover the compost pile with a blanket, cook the aphids, and all of a sudden the aphids that began to appear are wiped out and killed before they can ever even make the next generation of life. So intensivity is really, really important. Making sure that you're constantly keeping big but young and healthy and active plants in the ground so that they're at their height of photosynthesizing um, and feeding the soil. Um, also, I'd like to say, you asked, you know, what are the thousand different things that you are doing there? And of course we can't go into them, but honestly, they are going to be different on our farm than they are on yours, than they are on, you know, so-and-sos. And I'd really love to emphasize the importance of observation and being out there and trialing things and watching, wow, this feels a little bit dry. Wow, I think I could cover things. Let's try this. Um, just observing and observing and observing. And honestly, that is how we developed our system is doing tillage, doing what we thought was you know, the right thing of in organic agriculture, what we were being taught and observing that that wasn't working, uh, observing the soil, observing the pest problem, oh, bringing geez. in, you know, and, <laughs> yes. and, you know, oh, Paul and I, our background actually is very different than other people. Uh, the two of us met in West Africa um, and we helped people farm in West Africa. Um, we had to the Sahara Desert. Yes. And I was going to say, She's heading towards an e ecological description of our farm, but one of the other main tools in our toolbox would be focusing first and foremost on the ecology. So I mentioned the below ground ecology of soil, but the above ground ecology is equally as important. And that's one of the main reasons we have had such success with managing our soil. So back to 
we were farming in Saharan and West Africa. Oh, I'm, I'm just saying we, we saw a very different way of, of farming. And so when we were observing that things weren't working well on the farm, hey, let's try something completely different here. We have seen people do hand labor permanent beds. Let's get rid of the tractor. It's not working for us. Let's use a rototiller instead. Let's build permanent beds. And oh, let's also see if we can go year round because we need to pay for our property taxes and we're not making enough money. And and oh, and we have this fantastic employee. And if we, for the third winter, till everything under and put in a cover crop, we're not going to have work for him for three months. And he's going to move to Santa Cruz and probably not come back again in February or March. So let's see if we can make some permanent beds that we can keep the tractor out of farm in the winter and see what happens here. So there was a definite demand from the economic side of property taxes and mortgage and definite demand from the social side of keeping an amazing employee. And there's also an ecological demand in that we were actually invited. Um, Deborah Coons Garcia was coming out to film for Symphony of the Soil, a very good movie if you want to watch a movie about soil, even though she doesn't talk about no-till in it, but she does talk about soil and soil health. And one of the checklist items that she wanted to film on our farm was earthworms in a vegetable bed. And so we went out there early in the morning to make sure that we had the earthworms in the vegetable beds because you don't want to not have something when the film crew shows up. And so we're looking around and the first bed we dig into, tons of earthworms, but the vegetables are kind of ugly. So we go to the next bed and dig in that one, couldn't find an earthworm. Go to the third bed, dig in that, not a single earthworm. And go to the fourth bed and dig in that, tons of earthworms, vegetables look beautiful, good. We can have a nice filming for the crew. And so the day went on. But meanwhile, we're sitting here scratching our heads going, why did the first and fourth bed have earthworms and the second and third didn't? And that was quite a conundrum for most of the morning until we realized that second and third bed had had a walk behind rototiller in the past six to 12 months, those two beds. The first and fourth bed that had the earthworms hadn't seen a walk behind rototiller in 18 months or longer. And all of a sudden it dawned on us, even the walk behind rototiller was wiping out the earthworm populations for at least a year in our beds. And the earthworms are just the macroscopic life. What about the microscopic life? What about all the things that we can't see and what's happening to them? So this huge ecological impetus was behind our transition to no-till in addition to the social and economic impetuses of keeping an awesome employee year round and giving them job security and being able to afford to farm vegetables on newly purchased land in Sonoma County. I took you a little bit down a wormhole talking about observation. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's, it's, no, I think I think it's good. I, you know, I actually, it's something that I come back again to again and again in my own thinking about farming is 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 the importance of management. And one of the key steps in management is, I mean, I call it monitoring because I stole that from the holistic management people. But that is really what observation is. It's it's looking and going, am I getting what I want out of the thing that I'm doing? Is this moving me towards the objective that I'm trying to achieve? And that's why I think it's so critical for farmers to remember the process of biology and photosynthesis and the underlying foundation of our livelihood, which is soil. Because so often that's out of sight and out of mind, and we assume the soil test will tell us what minerals and nutrients need to put back in but that biology is so often forgotten about, in part because we just don't know enough about it, except that we see when biology is healthier, everything else is easier and healthier. So we're at the point now where we pretty much don't have pests. We pretty much don't have weeds. We've 
gotten rid of most of all the viruses and diseases and pathogens that were out there. And we've been able to farm tomatoes in the same beds for 12 years. In the first couple of years of doing that, when we were tillage-based, those tomatoes had viruses and diseases. But we've still had tomatoes in the same beds. And as the soil gets healthier and healthier, those viruses and diseases have faded away. So talk to me about the kinds of things that you're observing and paying attention to when it comes to measuring and evaluating your soil health, if you're not relying on the soil test? Well, there are actually the myriad of soil tests. And I think a really fun one was a total microbiology test for the soil. And we didn't need to do it, but we wanted to because it was actually a confirmation of all of other management techniques and other observations that we can go to as well. But this one observation was doing a PLFA test, which there are many types of biologists, of course, and PLFA is just one of many. But one of the results that we had from that was we did a control test in one of our green grass permanent roadways, and we did another test 30 feet away in a vegetable bed in one of our no-till fields. And these two tests were 30 feet apart. Both have basically permanent crops, but one of them is a permanent grass cover and no harvest from it. The other one's permanent vegetable rotation and constant harvest. And what we found is that the grassy roadway had slightly above average for total soil biology and 30 feet away in the production economic vegetable beds, we had about four times as much biology in the soil, three and a half to four times as much biology in the production area over the permanently grassed roadway, which should have been a very healthy ecosystem to begin with, and it was. So that kind of laboratory observation was really critical to giving some numbers to what's happening in the microscopic range. But macroscopically, some observations are simply, what is the soil tilt naturally doing? How much moisture is it holding? How much plant covers on it? What kind of diversity of plants are in the soil? Are we making sure to rotate enough vegetables through? Are we intercropping and multi-cropping vegetables together to create diversity? Are we maintaining edible weeds along the perimeters and throughout the beds to add even more diversity and more plant cover? I would say a lot of it actually comes from just sticking your hands in, from transplanting um, and, uh, you know, is, is it dry? Is it wet? Is it chunky? Is it, am I, am I encountering uh, life in there? Oh, uh, there's an earthworm here, or there's uh, too many roly polies over here. The soil is really cold here. Um, uh, the, she mentioned cold soil being cold, and that's actually an interesting offshoot that we could go into. But one of the ways to cover your soil, if you can't do it with green living plants, is to cover it with mulches. And they can be dead plants, it can be straw, wood chips, uh, or get into plastics and um, landscape fabrics and stuff like that. And it's interesting to remember that. Not all mulch is necessarily good. The mulch um, can reflect a lot of light, like a straw, and keep your soil very cold, which in the summer for brassicas is great, but in the summer for corn or tomatoes would be horrible. And so it's interesting to for us, being in a very cold valley bottom, that we need to um, be aware of the temperature of the soil and temperature of the climate and really help to accelerate the warming of our soil in the springtime and lengthen the warming of the soil into the fall as far as we can, but yet protect it from summer's furious UV exposure and wind, as well as protect it from winter's deep freezes that we have constantly and repeatedly. Another major observation is the crop that we are just harvesting and taking out of there. 
How did it do? How quick was it? How did the leaves look? Um, is there a lot of leaf growth? Is there a lot of uh, 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 the fruit? Uh, let's see, what else? And what season did it just grow in? Yes. And then what does the soil look like right now as a crop comes out? Yes. What season are we heading into? Yes. And what's the next crop we want to put in? Et cetera. And then also not necessarily our observation, but what has the weather been? What is the weather projected to be? Those are really, really important. We just had a very strange two weeks where it was almost 80 degrees it out was here. 80. <laughs> and in then, early February. And now we're hitting low and mid twenties in the mornings right now. Yes. The high for today is 55 and the low is 20 this morning. So um, taking all of that into account as well. Paul, you mentioned above ground biology leading to soil improvement. And that doesn't feel to me like an obvious straight line <laughs> sort of a thing. Uh -huh. Oh, good observation. So, um, yes. And actually, thank you for asking about the above ground macrobiology again, because that is really our, um, our foundation and our beginnings and our origins. And our, my master's degrees were really looking at how to help farmers in the hot, dry tropics to regenerate their soil and regenerate their livelihoods. And I worked very much with agroforestry, trees, and bushes, and how those interacted with soil and crops to help bring back vitality to heavily degraded lands in the tropics. And now we are here in a cold, temperate zone in a low valley bottom and inland California, slightly inland California. It's an intriguing location we have. And we focused first and foremost on building back that ecology. We planted a couple thousand Sonoma County native, pollinator-friendly perennial hedgerow plants, so bushes mainly that were natives here. We also put in trees and fruit trees and fruiting bushes, blueberries and um, elderberries and stuff like that. But the main focus was really on pollinator-friendly perennial and native bushes. And the act of what a bush is doing is in part drawing up nutrients and moisture from deeper levels than vegetables ago. And then they drop leaf litter onto the soil surface, adding more nutrients. So taking deep nutrients and depositing it on the surface where it's more available to our soil and our plants. But honestly, one of the huge benefits that a low bush hedgerow can provide to a farm, we're talking about three foot to six foot or three foot to eight foot bushes, it isn't necessarily the beneficial insects and pollinators that I'll get into, but it really comes from the overall management of the climate on the farm. Your vegetables are primarily all one to two feet tall and they have quick little lives and they're down there against the soil. And these bushes that are taller provide windbreaks and climatic stability to all the fields. We're talking windbreaks of these hedgerows every 100 feet, every 150 feet, fairly close together. And that reduces the amount of wind stress on the plants and wind stress on the soil. So it reduces the amount of evapotranspiration and transpiration, therefore water loss in the overall system, including soil. And it overall protects the soil and keeps it a little bit healthier, a little bit more moist. And we've also found that these hedgerows, because they are drawing up deep water and exuding that water through their leaves, they're creating a little bit more um, atmospheric moisture and humidity in the air, which means that on super hot days, it's a little bit cooler near the hedgerow. And on super cold nights, it's a little bit warmer in the hedgerow. So the overall climatic benefits of the hedgerow are significant, really hard to quantify, but very significant for both the vegetable plants and the soil nearby in making a much healthier system. And 
you can know this yourself as a human because your plants and your soil biology need the same things you need. And if you walk out into a field and it's a big, expansive, barren area that's dry and dirty, you're going to feel exposed. You're going to feel basically naked out there and exposed to the elements. And what are you going to do? You're going to go find a fence to lean against. You're going to go find a tree to stand under. You're going to find bushes or cars to be near. You're going to want some other structure that's bigger than you next to you to help provide that feeling of um, protection. And your vegetables, they want the same thing, but they're out there 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and they can't move because they're rooted. So we need to bring that protection to them as close as we can and create this hedgerow atmosphere throughout the fields to help create some climatic stability. Are you using cover crops in your fields? I mean, you mentioned that in the old days, you would have tilled everything in in the fall, planted a cover crop, and then come back in the spring, and that you're not doing that anymore. But do cover crops figure into your crop rotation and your soil building strategy? The cover crops, in the way that most people think about them, do not Every crop we have out there, whether it's a Napa cabbage or pepper or a broccoli or whatever it is, radicchio, fennel, I don't care what, all of them are covering the soil. All of them are feeding the soil. All of them are part of the system. No, we do not do a non-economic cover crop. We do do some, you know, favas and so forth, but we will harvest those as well. Um, so every crop on our farm is a cover crop and is an economic cover crop. Um, that's all I can say about it. <laughs> I do know some people, um, you know, part of our system is being year round and being very intensive and that's a lot of work. And we have a really fantastic crew, um, that we work with. And I would love to chat about that at some point. Um, but, you know, there are some people who are in different climates or who don't want to be that intensive and want to, for instance, take off their winters or take off their summers. And for them, it has worked well to put in a non-economic cover crop and then do something like chop it and occultate over it or something like that. So it can work as part of the system. We do not on our farm. And an important um, equation to add on to that is that if you do a cover crop and you either chop and drop or till it under, then between two thirds and three quarters of the carbon and nitrogen content of the cover crop is often lost to the atmosphere and only a quarter to a third is maintained in the soil. But if we look at every single economic crop as a cover crop and we're cutting and removing the plant growth and putting it in the compost pile, when you compost the green biology, green, green organic matter, and put it back in the field as finished compost, you've actually maintained two thirds to three quarters of the carbon and nitrogen in that compost and only lost a quarter to a third of it to the atmosphere. So to the act of growing these all as economic cover crops and then removing them and putting it back in the field as finished compost, we're doubling the amount of nutrient retention versus if we had grown a non-economic cover crop and then plowed it under. Paul, can you explain why that is? Because I, I understand what you're saying, right? If I if I if I have a crop in the field, and I just chop it and leave it lay, why wouldn't that be getting me as much organic matter? I mean, because the same amount of organic matter is there as if I put it in the compost pile. Right. So chop and drop or till tillage. Either way, you're well chop and drop. You're losing a lot of the CNN to exposure. The wind and sun is going to draw out a lot of the nutrients, and it'll volatilize with the carbon, well, the carbon and nitrogen in the plant 
matter, well, volatilize with the oxygen in the air and form carbon dioxide and nitrous oxide, two of the most potent greenhouse gases. Same goes with the tillage. If you were to plow under a cover crop, that very active plowing it under and tilling it up is breaking it up into large, from large plant matter and large soil aggregates down into small chunks. So you have a greater surface area to volume ratio after tillage, and therefore you have more exposed surfaces. So a lot of the C and the N, carbon and nitrogen from the plant matter and the soil both, are also exposed to the oxygen being injected through the act of tilling, and they combine again to form carbon dioxide and nitrous oxide. And those lift off and go into the atmosphere as greenhouse gases. So in both cases, much of your CNN in the plant matter or banked in the soil is lost through exposure and through disturbance. And yet, as farmers, as we know, the two things you need most in your soil are nitrogen for plant growth and carbon for soil structure. So versus if you'd removed the biomass from the fields, put it in the compost pile and compost it, you have a much larger percentage of that CNN maintained in that compost pile, especially if it's a covered compost that's well-managed, and then it gets put back in the fields. The trade-off is obviously to compost it all requires more labor. Right. And to just chop and drop or till under is much more efficient and easy to do. So if you have 100 acres you're working on, this may not work. But I would love to see, rather than 100-acre no-till veg farms being intensive, I'd love to see 100 one-acre no-till veg farms being intensive. So if instead of chopping and dropping, you're taking that cauliflower plant or that tomato plant or whatever it is, chopping the top of it off, wheeling it out of the field, and now it goes on to a compost pile. Or it, talk to me about the process of turning that tomato plant or that cauliflower plant into compost at Singing Frog's Farm. Sure. Um, we do have about seven or eight or nine different compost piles around the property. Um, we wish we had more of them that were more centrally located to more fields. Um, but we try to get a compost pile near every two or three fields and then have space for two piles. You can make one and turn it and then start making a second one. But the process um, is pretty darn straightforward. We try to keep things as low maintenance as possible and highly focused on productivity. So rather than saving up different ingredients from our fields to then build a pile all at once, we don't do it that way. We Instead, we are simply just feeding the pile with whatever comes out of the fields at all times. And we just feed the pile, feed the pile, weeds go into there, Weed seeds go into there, all the vegetable matter goes in there, et cetera, and all the green matter goes in, and then we will certainly rake up oak leaves from our oak woodland. We can bring in some neighbors' um, horse manure from organically fed horses, and we can bring in some purchased compost, and we can blend all of these together to make our finished compost. However, in the process of making ours, as I said, we keep feeding the pile until the pile is full from our point of view. And from our point of view, a full pile is one that we can no longer manage by scale. So it, a maximum size would be about 20 feet long, 15 feet wide, 10 feet high. And at that point, we tell the crew, okay, we're done feeding this pile. Let's start making a new pile over here. And then we take that finished pile and we turn it immediately because by the time we've finished building it over three to eight weeks of feeding it, usually the bottom half is already mostly decomposed. So we invert the pile right away and then cover it with a compost blanket. And then it's a matter of, we will certainly turn it at least three or four or five more times so that we ensure that the pile spikes up to 150, 160 degrees Fahrenheit at least four or five or six times. But we may do that process slowly over a few months if the compost isn't needed right away, or we may do that process really quickly over a few weeks if the compost is needed right away. And then 
another thing is we we make more than half of our own compost, but we also do bring in some compost. And we feel pretty strongly that the best compost is two or three different composts mixed together because each will have uh, positives and negatives. It might have really fantastic body and be great at holding water, or it might have really good nutrients. Um, but generally you won't get one compost that is good at everything. So we bring in compost from our municipality uh, and we've been having some challenges with that the last couple of years due to some political things going on. But um, generally the idea is that us as farmers, one of our jobs is exporting nutrients off of our property every single day, Waters and water and nutrients. Uh, and those nutrients need to come back from our community. And the ideal way to do that is a nutrient loop whereby we can get compost from our community. Uh, so that's what we try and do on our farm. So once we've gotten through the process that Paul just described, the very last uh, turn, we will combine our compost with something that is purchased, turn it one more time, cover it one last time, let it sit there for a short amount of time, and then use that. And again, not to get too focused on the compost, but how much compost are you putting down on a bed before you plant? So right now, um, our heavy compost beds that we're putting in, getting ready for like a six-month tomato crop, we're putting out about a half inch of compost. And for some beds, uh, especially in our hoop houses where we overwinter lettuces, we have found that we can actually create an aphid problem by having too much fertility in the soil. So we often put down a half inch of compost and organic fertilizers in August for our last cucumber crop. Those cukes will harvest out by Halloween and then we'll follow it with three successions of lettuces over winter until February or March without any further compost or fertilizer of any kind. So we'll do the one cucumber crop plus three lettuce crops all banked on the one set of nutrients put in in August, as well as the healthy soil biology in the first place. But for our field crops, it really depends on heavy feeder to heavy feeder, light feeder to light feeder. And we're putting down about a half inch of compost on maybe 70 or 80% of our beds. And the rest of them won't get any compost. Now, when we started out and when we start a new area, we will do a little bit more than that. It'll be one to two inches of compost for the first few crop rotations um, to get things started. And that definitely helps um, uh, get the bed going. And it also helps with suppressing the weeds because um, but as you get into a no-till system, it takes a while to work yourself out of the seed bank that's there. Um, which is kind of an irony because it was the tillage, for us at least, that created a lot of the weed problems that we now have, especially bindweed. Bindweed was never very prolific on the farm, but our tillage in the beginning made it prolific on the farm. So we've actually used that one to two inches of compost to start a bed, as she said, as weed suppression often. Uh and get, when you uh, say has weed suppression, really, it, you're you're talking about what I might what I might call a mulch to control the weeds. Yes, but it would be a obviously since it's compost, it's a nutrient dense mulch right. as opposed to a wood chip or saw mulch, which is going to be all carbon based and therefore actually deprive your soil temporarily of nitrogen. You bet. Now, one of the things that I've noticed as I've been flipping through the pictures of your farm that are available online is that it seems like you guys do a lot of well, I call it interplanting, you know, having onions and lettuce or having tomatoes and another crop all in the same bed. Can you 
tell me a little bit more about when you decide to do that and how you make sure that that process works. I'm thrilled that you asked about that because we love doing interplanting. And, you know, one of the things that Paul said earlier is, you know, keep your soil covered as often as possible. And by having and diversity and by having two crops in there at the same time, you are more than doing that. And then also the main crop that goes in there, there's a hundred percent cover of that when it goes in. And so that would be the leeks uh, that you're looking at. That would be the tomatoes, would be the Romanesco cauliflower, things like that. You're getting a hundred percent cover on that. And then you're getting an additional anywhere from 40 to 70% of another crop. So you're getting 1.7 crop out of there at one time, which is fantastic. But then the interrelationships through the plants, it's obviously a structural interrelationship. So we'll do a low wide lettuce with shallow roots mixed in with a Romanesco cauliflower, which is a tall, big plant with much deeper roots before they go wide. And the, the relationship is they both go in as transplants at the same time. And while they're growing together, the lettuce is helping maximize photosynthetic capture and cover of the soil because the Romanesco cauliflower would be spaced too far apart and have too much light going through to the soil. So the lettuce is helping maximize photosynthesis, it's helping maximize root exudates. It's helping maximize soil moisture retention. It's not drawing out more water. It's actually maintaining a higher level of moisture in the soil by protecting the soil and covering it. And then as, and it's also suppressing weeds. Simultaneously, Romanesco cauliflower is growing big. And as you get closer to lettuce harvest, Romanesco begins to close canopy and the leaves of the plants will begin to touch. So just as your lettuce is getting ready to harvest, it's getting maximum sun and wind protection from the cauliflower. So while the lettuce is benefiting the cauliflower and the soil in many ways while it grows, and then right towards the end, the cauliflower benefits the lettuce, lettuce harvest out. Now you have a weed-free bed with high um, organic matter and high moisture content, and the cauliflower can go to town and produce its crop. So in spring, summer, and early autumn, almost all of our lettuce and many of our Asian greens are put in with another crop, not by themselves. Uh, and we will only do, do that during that period because in the winter, we might have competition for sunlight. And that is one of our biggest limiting factors on the farm is how much sunlight we have. And that is the main reason that we slow down in the winter um, as we get you know fewer and fewer sunlight hours. Uh, but we love doing our interplanting and do it as much as we can during the main seasons. And even an example like the leeks and mini remains or leeks and baby bok choy, we often get two or even three crops of mini remain while that one crop of leeks is growing. Or simultaneous with the tomato crops, we put the tomatoes in starting in early March, <clears throat> even though we have frost all the way until early June, we keep them covered. But when the tomatoes go in early March, we put a side crop of lettuces or cilantro or parsley or something else or escaroles and frisées down the side of the tomato beds. And we often can get two sequential crops of lettuce or Asian greens while the tomatoes are growing from transplant to their first fruit. So having lots of economic revenue rolling in from a bed that is otherwise just growing your tomatoes is a really nice thing to have economically, but it also helps maintain soil moisture content weed suppression, soil biology, all the other benefits for the soil as well. And it helps keep your, your farm small. And having a small farm really allows you so much freedom. Um, uh, 
you know, you don't have to travel large distances. You can really keep your eye on what's happening. You can keep it intensive. And the more intensive that you keep it, the better your soil is and the better you're able to manage all of it. So it goes back to the old saying that the, the best fertilizer is a farmer's footsteps. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> on that good quote, we're going to stop here, take a quick break, get a word from a couple of sponsors, and then we're going to be right back with Paul and Elizabeth Kaiser from Singing Frogs Farm in Sebastopol, California. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Farmer's Web, software for your farm. Farmer's Web makes it easy to work with your buyers, saving you time, increasing efficiency, reducing mistakes, and streamlining order management. Farmer's Web helps you manage orders from buyers who place them online, but also those that order by phone or email. Use Farmer's Web to generate a product catalog for buyers. Allow those buyers to view your real-time availability online and create harvest lists and packing slips for your orders. Farmer's Web helps you inform your buyers of delivery routes, pickup locations, lead times, and more while helping you keep track of special pricing and customer information. You can also download detailed financial reports. Farmer's Web offers a free account type and a flat monthly fee on paid plans. You can pause, cancel, or switch plan types at any time. Check out a demo video and the Farmer's Web Guide to Working with Wholesale Buyers at FarmersWeb.com. And perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by Vermont Compost Company, makers of Fort V and Fort Light potting mixes. When you're growing transplants, all of the investments you've made in plant materials, heat, labor, and overhead depend utterly on the performance of the media where you expect your plants to grow. And if you're an organic grower, you're probably using a media based on compost, and you should be looking for the best compost. Most organic potting soils have two parts, the compost and everything else. At Vermont Compost Company, Carl Hammer and his crew are very intentional about the inputs they use in their compost. While they're making use of waste products, waste disposal is not their primary goal. Ingredients are sourced consciously and with the end in mind. And the same goes for the everything else part of the potting soil. Like the best in art, everything in Vermont compost potting soils has a purpose. Fully compost to compost, top quality ingredients and a real sense for the art and the science of plant production combine with a real commitment to organic growing professionals that they're going to create a consistent product year after year after year. And in something that's subject to as many variables as market farming, it's nice to have something you can count on. VermontCompost.com all right, and we're back with Paul and Elizabeth Kaiser from Singing Frogs Farm in Sebastopol, California. I'll ask this from both of you, but Elizabeth had mentioned earlier, you wanted to talk about training a crew or having a crew in this kind of a setup and how you work with your employees. And one of the things that I, I can imagine is that with this much complexity in your operation, it must, I mean, it's not like you can just, it, it's not like you can just hire somebody off the street, send them out to do the work. <laughs> um, it is a, you know, farming is a highly skilled job, no matter where you're doing it, and yes. especially on an intensive no-toll system. It's highly skilled. No question about it. Um, we absolutely love our crew. And because we are such an intensive operation and a year-round intensive operation, everybody needs a break. We need to work together. And we love that. So for us, what's actually most important is that people come that are in love with the work and that know how to move their body. Once you have that um, and you can just get stuff done, you can just go, we actually are able to train a lot. So 
no, we don't just take anybody off the street. We want somebody who's passionate. We want somebody who can move. We want somebody who's got a decent amount of experience. And then we want somebody who fits into the crew. We have just really wonderful cohesion in our crew. We have so much fun. You should have seen us yesterday morning packing CSA boxes in the barn. It was too cold. So we had everybody in the barn working all at once. And it was a riotous crew. And it was about, uh, uh, we, somebody brought chocolate and, uh, and uh, we just had a lot of fun. And sometimes we're talking what's going to happen next on the farm or farming practices or, uh, you know, there was a rare uh, a seed exchange that somebody went to and they were really excited. And sometimes we're talking, hey, you're going camping next week and tell us about that. So that is very, very important. So we train people. We have a, a, a core crew of full timers and then a bunch of part-timers who come and go, and they are a wonderful addition. They might have a job in a farm-related nonprofit, or they might run their own farm on the side, or they might be a soil scientist on the side. And we love having them pop in and help a couple of days a week, be a very important part of the team, but have a core of, of full-timers that, that keeps us going through. Uh, everybody does very similar work. There are a couple people who specialize in, in little areas, but overall, we're all working together. We meet in the morning with a to-do list and, hey guys, here's what we're doing for the day. We, you know, two people should work on this. Let's get a crew on this. And then people sort of self-select on what they're interested in, how they're feeling that day. They just did a lot of bed prep yesterday and their body's a little tired. They want to do some seating. Um, so it, it works really well. And we actually, for the most part, people are working on multiple different projects during the day. So it isn't just one thing for four hours or eight hours or 10 hours at all. Um, and in fact, we don't really have 10 hour days. Everyone here works a 40 hour week or less. And it really is focused on a diversity of projects. And we are kind of doing a little bit of everything every day of the week. And so for the most part, most of the year, we're harvesting four to five days a week. And we are transplanting four to five days a week. And we are bed prepping and managing four to five days a week. And we're doing seed sowing in the nursery about two or three days a week. We can usually knock it out. So it's sort of a constant flow of productivity. And there's not a lot of time for maintenance. We don't need to do weeding. We don't do any sprays of any kind, not organic, not conventional. And we don't do thinning. We don't do all that kind of management stuff. We just focus on the production part. And we do a little bit of production of all kinds every day. In the winter, we do a little bit, of, we'll save some of the uh, projects, the management projects, and that is also an important part of it so that we keep our crew here year round. You know, and, like reskinning a hoop house or widening the gravel parking area for our CSA members or helping put in some um, hedgerows, that kind of stuff in the wintertime and getting straw mulch ready for the spring growth. Yes. And by keeping people busy with those in the winter, this year, I, as people are asking, you know, for work on the farm, I'm having the problem of having to say, hey, nobody left last year. I have a full crew. You know, we're just rearing and ready to go. Um, so no hiring this year so far. We have just an amazing crew we've kept for the past, well, year plus. Yeah. Just ongoing. And mm -hmm. uh, on our slightly less than three acres of production, we find that about five to six full time equivalents is um, what we're using out here. Not counting ourselves. Correct. So that was a question I had. You said 40 out, nobody on the farm works more than about 40 hours a week. Does that include Paul and Elizabeth? 
It does include Paul and Elizabeth, actually. At this point, when we were starting up, we were doing a little bit more. Um, when we started, Elizabeth did have a off-farm job as a public health nurse, and then yes. she worked here about half the week. And I worked certainly full-time, more like the 50, 60, 70-hour weeks that most farmers know. But as we got our no-till system up and running and began to hire people, we definitely pulled back. She became a full-time farmer three-plus years ago, which is fantastic. And now we are both full-time, but our full-time is really sort of that 20 to 40 hours a week because a lot of our time is put into education and outreach and networking and conferences and that kind of stuff. So our actual farming hours are not at all full-time for either of us. Yes. One of the things that I oftentimes see when people are doing a lot of you know education and conference work and consulting is a lot of criticism like, oh, well, that's clearly where you're making your money. Are you guys making your money on your farm? Or are you making your money from your teaching and consulting and telling everybody how cool you are? I'm glad you asked. I was just thinking the same thing, that when we talk about the numbers for our farm, that does not include education, outreach, consulting, no. or conferences. It is strictly the vegetable production. Yes. And you say when you talk about numbers, that's actually something that you didn't just sling out there right away, which I really appreciate. What do the gross and the net look like on your farm, if you're willing to share that? We didn't put it out there at the beginning because that is not my goal. And it's actually sort of embarrassing to talk about the money aspect. Um, I want us to be sustainable and viable, and I want everyone to be able to be sustainable and viable. But I don't want to talk numbers. And the only reason we brought out the numbers was because we wanted to give validity to our ecological no-till approach to farming. We wanted to ensure that, yes, we are doing all these wonderful things for the environment and the soil and our crew and all of that. And yes, it happens to also be economically viable. Typically, we're grossing around $100,000 per crop acre per year. And that is on sort of the two to two and a half acres of production, plus another half acre for the nursery area and the barn and the compost piles and all that and the roadways. And... Net is a very different thing because I'm actually proud to say we had almost no profit last year. All of our money went out in payroll, which included payroll to us. Um, so we want to keep it that way. In terms of what you're asking of, of what is your net, I'm going to actually take you back a few years ago before we were doing the consulting and say three years ago when I was still just finishing working and doing public health and Paul was working six days a week on the farm and I was working two days a week on the farm, we were netting 75 K a year. So I think that's relevant to your question. It's not the answer that is right now because yes, we are doing a lot of education. I don't think that's a useful answer. Right. I agree. I, but I think that 75 number is, is an interesting number because it does really say something about the, the economic performance of your farm. Right. And that is that it is an economically, like you said, an economically viable operation, not just in terms of gross per acre, but in terms of what it's actually returning to the two of you. Correct. Correct. And I would say that of our gross right now, a good 62 to 68 percent really sort of varies, but it's been growing every year. But somewhere in that two thirds of every dollar we bring in goes to our employees, not us, but to our employees. So they're, they're collecting 65 cents of the dollar of what we sell, which is great. It makes us feel good and we really appreciate them, which means there's less than a third of our money coming in goes to the farm owners, us, and to all of our other inputs and tools and fees and insurances and those things. When you say 
crop acres. When you say, you know, about $100,000 per crop acre, is that beds and walkways? Or are you guys, I mean, is there is there a way that you're kind of fudging those numbers around? So we tend to measure the entire field um, corner to corner, which includes all the beds, all the pathways, the hedgerows are associated, and the tractor roads in between. Great. So it's the crop area. It, we're not counting our ponds, not counting the redwood trees, not counting the bamboo groves, not counting the sheep pastures, et cetera but we're counting the fields with their beds and pathways and hedgerows, the whole rectangle, and then adding it all up. And there is one very nice photograph of our farm from overhead. And you'll see the beds running across the length of the photograph from left to right in the bottom, in the foreground. And just to give you an idea, those beds in that photograph, they're actually 120 foot beds and you're not seeing the entire length. You're only seeing about 100 feet of length of that bed. So it looks much larger than it really is. And so when you talk about, so you got those 120 foot beds and I'm, I actually happened to be looking at that picture while you were saying that. So then I'm also saying <laughs> that you got other beds on the farm that are so much shorter than that, that aren't 120 yes. foot. They must be, and, and I guess I, I mean, I see the tractor now I'm going like, well, of course those aren't 120 foot beds, but they look like they might be in the 30 to 40 foot length range. Yeah. The shortest beds we have are sort of 30 and 40 foot, and the longest is 120 foot. And one irony is that we actually, that 120 foot long field is the one where we, um, about five years ago, I was out there managing crops and crew, and we had cabbage growing there, some nice Dutch head cabbage. And I told the crew, hey, we got to go out and harvest cabbage. They asked where. I said, Owen Field 3. And the entire crew groaned. I'm like, what? What's wrong with harvesting cabbage in Field 3? I said, Paul, don't you know? That's the long field. It takes a lot more distance to get the cabbage out of the middle of the field. Ah, so there's an employee morale aspect to having certain bed lengths. And we found that our 120 foot beds, you can't see the other end of the bed well. You can see that it's there, but you can't see the irrigation hoses, you can't see the weeds, you can't see the gophers from the far end. So we actually really appreciate our bed lengths that are between 70 and 90 feet or 60 and 90 feet, because you can see the far end of the bed and you can see when there are issues and challenges and things failing that need to be fixed. And it doesn't require you to walk the entire length of the bed necessarily. So we appreciate a shorter length bed for many management aspects, as well as just employee morale of getting those heavy crops out from the middle. And if I were to redesign our farm, I would try and have more beds the same length. We have all sorts of different lengths and it's just because of the organic growth that our farm has had this field over here and that one over there um and it's the way it is and it actually it works out fine but um i, I would have more of the same length uh, as well as having our composting operation in in the middle of the farm uh uh and maybe also our pack shed in the middle but, but the bed length brings on an interesting other topic if you don't mind which is you know we want similar bed lengths so that we can cut one frost blanket and have it go on any bed in the farm. But I also like having different bed lengths because a different bed lengths creates a more patchwork quilt work um, feeling that's less uniform and mechanistic and planned. And so it has a more organic feeling by having different bed lengths. And that brings up the topic of how do we do crop planning? And the traditional way of crop planning is looking at your field or your beds as the unit. And you look at the bed and say, well, how many units can I get in there? How much parsley will it hold? How much tomatoes will it hold? How many um, carrots will it hold? And the bed becomes a unit around which you do crop planning. 
And through our no-till intensive model, we used to do that kind of crop planning with the Excel spreadsheets in the wintertime and getting ready for the bed units to figure out what goes in where, when, and how much. But as we went to intensive no-till, we threw that out the window. And now our crop planning comes down to about five minutes every Wednesday morning, and that's it. And the crop plan doesn't focus on the bed as the unit. It focuses on the plant as the unit. And what I'm doing on Wednesday morning for five minutes every Wednesday is I'm thinking, you know, what is the harvest rate and sales rate? What is the market demand from our restaurants? What does the Japanese restaurant in town want for baby bok choy? And how can we encourage them to buy more of it? What is the farmer's market able to sell in terms of head lettuce? So I just think about our overall sales. And I know it week to week. It doesn't change that much, but we can keep pushing certain things. And so therefore, I sit there Wednesday morning and think, what do I need to sow to have the harvest rate to fulfill that demand in the market? So I sit there and make my seeding list on Wednesday morning for five minutes. And the seeding list isn't very hard because I'm mostly looking at the prior five weeks to figure out what I'm sowing this week. And so I know that every week I've got to sow 40 flats of lettuce. Every week I have to sow 24 flats of baby bok choy. Every week I've got to sow um, whatever it happens to be. We keep moving through the list. And then I know that, let's say beets. Well, beets we sow four to six seeds in a cell and transplant that cell as one clump. Well, that means we do selective harvesting. We don't harvest the entire clump at once. We select out the big ones as they come ripe so that a beet harvest lasts four weeks. Well, if I know the beet harvest lasts four weeks, then I want to sow beets in the nursery every four weeks. And so our sowing rate is dictated by the harvest rate and the demand from the market side. And I simply make a sowing plan that morning for what I sow this week to make sure that we can meet or push that demand to be even larger. And that's our entire crop planning is plant-based. And then you also have your specials, yes, your seasonal specials, be of it course. Brussels sprouts or tomatoes or cucumbers. And you also do that in the morning um, where you'll flip back and say, when did we start cucumbers last year? When did we start cucumbers the year before? How did it work? Great. Let's start cucumbers, not this week, next week. So the whole crop plan is really just a spiral bound journal. That's about 400 pages. And we've filled up about 250 of those pages in the past four years, and I simply just add another date and list of seating on the next page, and we keep going from there. Anybody who knows me knows that I'm having some, I've got, I'm like breaking out in hives right now, so just. Um, <laughs> I was going to wait and see what your question was, but then there is the second half of that, of where do those beets or fennel or lettuce crops go? And that's the second half of it, which is sort of the fun half. And that's where you walk through the fields once a week or so and have your little voice recorder on your phone and you walk through the fields and say, well, what beds are ready and available for harvest and transplanting? And what beds will be ready next week to transplant into? And which beds need a little bit of TLC here and there? Then you walk through the nursery and say, oh, what plants need to go in the ground this week? What plants could go in the ground this week or next week? What plants need to go in the ground next week? And you go back to your computer, play the voice recording, and you list all your beds out, list all your plants out, and you just match them. It's just a dating game, and it's a big puzzle you're putting together. And that process takes maybe about a half hour, and we do that once a week or once every two weeks. It really depends on the need, and often we can eyeball it, and we have very much a living oral history. We keep things flowing very fast in the farm. But there's a few times we got to kind of plan it out and say, well, you know what? We did strawberries in this field last year, and yeah, there's a bunch of beds ready now, but I don't want to put the strawberries back in there. Let's put the strawberries over in field 18 because the Brussels sprouts are coming out right now. That'll be perfect. So a little planning here and there, but for the most part, it's all just on the spot decision making 
knowing what the living oral history is and moving forwards and making sure that the plants in the nursery get in the ground and the plants in the fields get harvested and go to market and the plants become our unit of focus, not the beds. And an important part of that is our large uh, transplant size and the large cell size because it gives us a little flexibility in the nursery that those don't need to go in, in today. They have a week and sometimes two weeks to go in um, and they will be healthy and fantastic without any uh, transplant shock. But it's also more observation based again of what was there, how did it go? We, you know, we had cauliflower there, let's not put in that broccoli there, let's put in this. We think that, you know, we're having a bowl pressure here, let's not put the beets down over there. So it's it's very active and we also, it allows us to be really flexible so we don't have holes. That crop did really well and we harvested that kale much longer than we thought we were going to, to have to. There's not another crop behind it pushing to get into that spot. You just move it into another spot. You had germ poor germination on this, in, uh, this lettuce because you had a heat wave. Well, you don't have an empty spot then, you just put something else in it. So it's really flexible and in the moment. And I think it fits with some of our other practices of just working with the seasons and the weather and the soil and just being really flexible. And I think the other thing that it seems to me besides the big plants is the fact that you're removing the tops and that you're, you're pulling the crop that's in the field it's not like you have to wait three weeks for that to break down and disappear. It is something that you are literally pulling out in the morning and planting in the afternoon. I think that's, that's also got to give you an additional element of flexibility there with that planning and kind of making it more of a dance rather than a, rather than a, than a, uh, uh, what's the right analogy here? Come on. Rather than an assembly line. Yeah, sure. And it's not pulling the plants out. It's cutting them out to leave yes. the roots intact. Thank you which also adds to that, just to be clear that the weeds do get pulled. And we tend not to have very many weeds because we are an intensive system and we're using large transplants. So what weeds we have had to germinate from seed and compete against these huge transplants that were already weeks ahead of them. So the very few weeds we tend to have are long and spindly and competing for sunlight against the established vegetables, which means pulling the weeds is quite easy. And we do pull the weeds. We don't cut them off at the ground level. Because weeds might regrow, first of all. But secondly, the rhizosphere associated with the roots of weeds is a very different rhizosphere than that which is associated with the vegetable crops. And the vegetables tend to prefer a more fungally dominant rhizosphere, and the weeds prefer a more bacterially dominant with different species mixes. So by pulling out the weed roots, first of all, it was a long, spindly weed competing for survival. And so its root structure is very minimal. And secondly, when you pull it out, you're removing that rhizosphere, which you don't want to encourage anyway. And then how are you controlling weeds in the paths between the beds? Many different ways. And um, I think it really depends on, again, time of year and climate and soil needs and associated crops. But you can see in the picture, we definitely use a lot of straw mulch and we love the rice straw going down as some pathway protection. Uh, that can happen especially if we have a particularly weedy pathway. But another system that we've used frequently is to get a three foot wide landscape fabric, a woven black plastic, so it's not it doesn't solarize. It allows some gaseous and moisture exchange, but it does cover and suppress weed growth. And we'll put down a three foot wide landscape fabric that goes from the top of the shoulder of one bed down in the pathway and back up to the top of the shoulder of the next bed. And we only have to put it down for three or four weeks. 
You put it down for two weeks, it kills back the weed, but you pull it off and the weed regrows from the growing head. You put it down for three or four weeks, it kills them off so they won't regrow. And we've actually found that by doing that black fabric in the pathway for three or four weeks or five weeks, it seems to also, because it's black, help to germinate a lot of weed seeds because of the conditions under the black. And when they germinate and are killed off immediately from a lack of light, that three or four weeks of a black covering tends to give us weed suppression for many, many, many months to come after the fabric is removed. And that way we don't have to have fabric in all of our pathways at all times, because I personally find that to be very unattractive. I don't want plastic out there. But to be able to use it in one out of every 20 beds just for a few weeks and then move it on to another bed and keep it moving is a much nicer system for managing weeds and pathways. Now, I actually wish we could do something else. And, you know, it depends on the resources that you have available. Paul mentioned that we use rice straw. Well, that's because we're here in California and we have that as a resource. Um, a lot of people have wood chips as a resource. And I wish we had more wood chips. I would put them in all of our pathways. Uh, and I think that would be great. Not up on the beds, but I, I love some of the work that's coming out of uh, David Johnson um, and uh, with his wife, Sue, and their bioreactor, where they are looking at having a heavy carbon-based, slow coal uh, composting process to create a very diverse um, microorganism. Uh, uh, well, it's a heavily fungally dominant compost. Compost. Yes. Out of a heavy carbon feedstocks over a slow decomposition, and slow cold decomposition. I would love to just do that in situ in our pathways and yet keep the soil covered and keep the weeds suppressed all at the same time. But honestly, for us in where we are, if we don't have anybody who will drop off wood chips for us and if we purchase them, they're actually more expensive than compost for us. So it's just not a resource. That's just ridiculous. <laughs> it's just not a resource for us. But if yeah. you could do it, I would I would love to have that. Um, we've thought about doing a green cover in our pathways, and we definitely do it in our roadways. Um, but in our pathways, we've talked to a lot of people about maybe doing like a low clover. There is a small no-till farmer up in Oregon who tried doing that, and it just ended up getting into her beds. And that really slowed us from doing that. Um, but I would love to come up with a better solution there yeah. than the black plastic. Yeah, we're always looking for other solutions, especially if they're living plant solutions, to maximize photosynthesis and cover. Absolutely. And the beds that yeah. you have look like they're raised a lot higher than a lot of the other no-till farms that I've seen pictures of. Did you guys raise those beds intentionally at the start of the process, or has that just been through the buildup of organic matter in situ? They were raised intentionally in the beginning. Uh, how we managed, how we created the beds was to mark out the field and mark out a four foot nine inch wavelength at each end of the field. And that four foot nine is what works for us in our system, in our context. And every mark of four foot nine became the pathway. And then we scooped out a shovel and a half wide worth of soil from the pathway and put it on the bed. And it wasn't dug out, although you can, you can dig it out from a field and turf, but we actually tilled first and then scooped out the loose soil, added it to the beds. So the beds now have one and a half or two times as much topsoil, and there's no topsoil on the pathway anymore. And the reason that we're lifting our pathways and raising up our beds is that we are in a cold and low valley bottom with a shorter day length up here in the more temperate zone. 
And as a result, one of our challenges is getting our soil to warm up and become more biologically active. So by having a raised bed, you actually have more soil surface focusing on the sun, especially early in the morning and late in the afternoon to help create more warming conditions, which is why we often like the black plastic as the uh, mulch in the spring and fall and winter to help create warming conditions. And then we can use a straw mulch in the summertime to reduce the soil exposure to the heat and the wind of summertime. But raising up the beds was critical in our cold, wet, temperate zone. And interestingly, when we began doing this in West Africa and the Sahara Desert, I was inverting beds. The beds were sunken. They were lower than the pathways. And that was to protect the soil from the exposure and the elements of the wind and sun in the Sahara Desert. So it really is about context and exposure and managing for soil health and soil protection. And actually, just last week, we visited some friends of ours who are doing a no-till operation, Mike, Mike and Shannon of Hillview Farms, and they are not doing raised beds. They actually have very minimally raised beds, and they're hoping to not do raised beds in the future. And they're in very different climate. Um, they're very dry, and they have a much more clay-based soil. And much hotter summertime as yes. well, and windier. Absolutely. So they need to lower their beds down to protect the flow more. It's a great idea. Yes. You've talked a lot about this very context-specific developments. You were just saying this with the beds, right? Sunken beds in the Sahara, raised beds in the cool valleys. And, and you've talked about this in terms of all of the decisions that you guys have made on your farm being very heavily contextual. How much of that came because you looked at the situation that you were in? Oh, we've got these kinds of soils, and we've got this kind of climate, and we've got this kind of daylight, therefore we need to do these things. And how much of it came from you guys screwing stuff up and then having to fix it? Perfect. Wow, I love, that's a great question. I love how you said it because that's something that we love to talk about is you got to go out there and do stuff. You just got to start doing things. And we started doing things on a two-acre or two-acre agroforestry plot in the Sahara Desert and just growing bushes and growing trees because we could. And then we were in Baltimore doing master's degrees and we started growing cherry tomatoes in planter boxes in our window in Baltimore City. I mean, you just gotta start doing things. And that is such a critical component. And we learned definitely through observation and through prior research, it's helpful, but the act of physically doing all of this and making mistakes constantly is great because every mistake is a learning opportunity. They might be failures in the immediate sense, but they are bountiful nurseries of, of knowledge and experience you're gaining from that failure. So you just got to start doing stuff and a lot of stuff and a lot of different things and try things out and try five different ways of doing it and see what works. It's a really critical component to any small business, especially one as, I think, complicated and complex as an intensive no-till farming system. And also going to see other pe other farmers' oh, yes. farms, um, because once you've started doing stuff, going to see somebody who does something similar, it makes you think, wow, well, they do that. Why do I do what I do? Uh, and uh, for that, I really appreciate your, your podcast because, you know, we need to hear what other people are doing. And maybe we don't feel comfortable sharing with our direct competitor at our farmer's market or something like that. But uh um, hopefully it, it'll give us ideas. And that's also why we like sharing. Um, I want to stress again that I do not think what we do on our farm is in any sense a model or what sh you should do or he should do or she should do on their farm. I just want to say this is what we do and what works for us. Now take whatever you can out of it um, and, and do something. 
it's not the model, it's a model. And we found that we can't extract too much of it. It really is a cohesive symphony of systems working together. So it's what we have created works very well for us. And somebody else, there have been other farms who have replicated our model down to the T and they have had great success as well. And there are other farms who have taken a lot of the ideas and the science background, the why it all works. And they have focused that into their own context and their own systems to create their own models that also function beautifully as long as that understanding of the science and the why and the networking connections is all there. Then the actual how of farming can be contextual. And that's really critical. So there are many models out there doing great things. Boom. With that, we're going to turn to our lightning round. But first, we're going to get a quick word from one more sponsor. This lightning round and the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by BCS America. A BCS two-wheel tractor is the only power equipment a market gardener will need with PTO-driven attachments like the rototiller, the flail mower, the power harrow, the rotary plow, snow thrower, the log splitter, and more. You name it, you can probably run it with a versatile BCS two-wheel tractor. The first time I used a rototiller way, way back in 1991, it was mounted to a BCS two-wheel tractor and it spoiled me for life. When you get behind a BCS, you can tell that it's built to the same commercial standards as four-wheel farm tractors, and it has many of the same features. I have used other tillers and mowers, and I spent most of the time that I was using them thinking of how much easier it would be with a BCS. Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and attachments, plus videos of BCS in action. Elizabeth, what's your favorite tool on the farm? What is my favorite tool? Well, I consider myself to be uh, the logistician and the communicator and so forth. So my favorite tool is a cell phone for communicating with the restaurants and my uh, CSA member and my communities and the, you know, people out in the fields and my husband. <laughs> Can I tell you how much we communicate? So I'd have to say that that is my favorite tool. Great. And Paul, your favorite tool on the farm? I appreciate that question. It definitely assumes a certain paradigm. It assumes that farms yes, need does, tools right? and right? <laughs> to be successful. And the truth for us in our system is that the tools we value most are actually our farm crew family and our healthy soil and our ecology. Those are the things that make our farm function. If you ask us about our physical tools, it's like a wheelbarrow and a shovel and a five-gallon bucket and a yogurt cup. I mean, that's like the tools that we use. So for us to make our farm work, it's the people and the soil and the ecology. I'm going to let you get by with that. Um, <laughs> Paul, what's your, favorite, what's your favorite crop to grow? Oh, boy. Um, oh, I'm going to do another non-answer for you. <laughs> Diversity is my favorite crop to grow. And I actually am quite honest in that. There's no single thing I love growing more than others. I mean, we all say, you know, carrots are the gateway drug to vegetables and cherry tomatoes are as well. And tatsoi is really fun because people tend not to know about it, but it's nutrient dense. And we love head lettuces. Head lettuce is just a gorgeous thing to crunch into and take a bite of like an apple. And all kinds of crops are fun to grow. But it's the diversity that's thrilling to me. That's what I enjoy. It's not just having diversity, but watching the interrelationships and the interplay among all the species making the diversity. That's what I enjoy. You're not making this easy. I'm not. <laughs> we don't follow rules very well. I'm... And, and if you really want to take it one step further, my favorite crop to grow are my hedgerows. 
It's my bushes. That's what I love growing. I love actually. <laughs> I love that answer. That's that's really that that's really interesting to me. Now, just one one quick question about those hedgerows. You've got, I mean, you're you're basically putting woodchuck habitat in the middle of your fields. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we have bulls, we have gophers, we have field mice, we have all those things, and actually we, birds, birds, songbirds is the problem with hedgerows. So we never mentioned how the obvious part of hedgerows is they promote beneficial insects, they promote pollinators, they promote songbirds. These are all pest control measures. They promote snakes even underneath them that help prevent pests or manage pests for us. The the other part of hedgerows is they can also encourage rodents. And so one management technique that we do, and that's often in wintertime, and it's once every three or four years, is we'll go to a hedgerow that's established and we'll prune up the bottom eight or 10 inches from the ground. So we don't want to have any twigs or leaves in the bottom eight inches. We only want branches. And that allows for a little bit of open airflow under the hedgerow, which prevents rodents and encourages snakes. Actually, the snakes love that open space because it means they get morning and afternoon, morning and evening sunlight to be warm longer throughout the day but they have overhead protection from the hawks and the predators of them. So we prune up the underside of the hedgerow just minimally to create that space that you fix a lot of the rodents. And I, I guess I would be remiss if I didn't ask you to quickly tell me what you guys do about weed control in the hedgerows, because I know from experience that can quickly turn into a haven of quackgrass and Canada thistle. Yeah. Right. The goal is not to make more management. The goal is to make less management. So one of the ways that we do that is we actually prepare the hedgerow with a straw mulch uh, many, many months before we ever plant it. And for us, with a dry season in California, we often do that planning in February, March, and April when we still have our last spring rains. We'll put straw mulch flakes down where we want to eventually put in a perennial plant. And it could be in a row or it could be in a triangle. It could be in a big circle. It could be just one little plant here and there. And that straw sits there all season long. And then by September, when we're about a month away from the rains beginning again, we can pull back the straw. The soil is still moist compared to the soil around it, which is bone dry. And it's also completely weed free. And so you pull back the straw, dig out the hole, put a little compost in, transplant the perennial plant, put the straw back and water it by hand once. So you don't need to put in irrigation. Right. So by having the soil already moist, it can receive the water you give it better and hold on to it. It's already been mulched and it's going to continue to be mulched. The plant now goes in the ground a month before the rains begin. That one watering is enough to keep it alive until the rains begin. And at that point, you've given the plant two or three or more months of growth before it goes dormant in winter. Then when it comes out of dormancy in February of the next year, it's already had those few months of growth to establish roots, have weed suppression, and then it just grows gangbusters all season long. And maybe if it's a particularly harsh drought year, we do a deep hand watering once in July and once in August, but we never have to install irrigation equipment, never have to manage irrigation equipment. And by mulching before it's even planted, we've already suppressed the weeds. And that mulch will usually last since the flake of rice straw, it lasts a good year, year and a half. And then by the following fall, when the plant is now one year old, you can often go back in during the winter when you need winter projects and put down another layer of straw mulch. And those two mulchings over two years is enough to get that hedgerow plant up to three or four years of age and three or four feet wide and tall so that it begins to shade its own roots and knock back the weeds itself. And that provides a really phenomenal habitat for a lot of smaller critters under there, all sorts of beneficial beetles and things like that. And spiders. Yes, that'll go out and do all sorts of uh, 
predating of our pests that have soil uh, cycles, life cycles. Life cycles. Thank you. Um, and we love that. Paul, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self just one thing, what would it be? I wish we had never started tillage in the first place on our farm. The prior owners had tilled, but they really only tilled like 10% of it a year. And so hadn't really been tilled. And we came in and we thought, hey, let's be good organic farmers and let's till. And the only reason that I regret that, it was a great learning practice and great learning experience. And it helped us get our farm started. But it also proliferated many of the weeds we now face today. And if we hadn't done the tillage, we wouldn't have quite the weed pressure, I don't think. I know some of our beds that went straight from meadow grass to no-till have very little bindweed. But the fields that got tillage for a couple of years before going to no-till, they are prolific bindweed nurseries now, unfortunately. And Elizabeth, how about you? If you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self just one thing, what would you say to her? I would have quit my off-farm job earlier. Woohoo! I agree. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think I would have been out there more earlier on. I was out there a lot, but um, I would have wanted to be hands-on earlier. Elizabeth and Paul, thank you so much for bringing so much energy and so much knowledge to the Farmer to Farmer podcast today. Hey, thank you so much for doing this. And I just wanted to throw a really quick shout out to our employee, Rose, who got us to do this. Um, she listens to every single one of yours. And um, I think it's great uh, sharing what lots of different people are doing. So thank so, you for doing what you do. Chris, great thank Rose. you very much for the opportunity and for what you do. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. All right, so wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 161 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. And that you can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Kaiser. That's K-A-I-S-E-R. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America. And by Osborne Quality Seeds, a dedicated partner for growers. Visit osborneseed.com for high-quality seed, industry-leading customer service, and fast order fulfillment. Additional funding for transcripts is provided by North Central SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast right in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. If you like the show, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a review or talk to us in the show notes or tell your friends about us on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of a resource you value. You can support the show directly by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. I am working to make the best farming podcast in the world and you can help. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com and I will do my best to get them on the show. That's how I got Elizabeth and Paul on the show today. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there and keep the tractor running.